right, thank you, Brother Vaughn. Let's stand and take our Bibles, please. Preaching is the engine that drives the church. Amen. Amen. Revelations chapter two. Now, I'll tell you what's easy about this study here. You just if you didn't, couldn't find any books of the Bible, just go to the back. It's in the back. Amen. And uh, you'll find it there. It's Revelation, last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter two. Revelation chapter. We're going to have a good time tonight. I have some wonderful passages of scripture. And uh, I'm not re-preaching something I preached in the past. It's all fresh, new. Maybe a couple things here and there will sound familiar, but it's, 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 it's all good here tonight. I'm looking forward to it. Pray for our church. We have a lot of folks out sick. And, uh, you know, we're just we're getting message after message after message this morning. People that couldn't be here today. So pray that everyone's healthy uh, for this coming Sunday there. And we're looking forward to that. It's going to be a great, great Sunday here for anniversary conference. Of course, I'm just thankful that uh, Pastor Ouellette will get to be with us for the first time on a Sunday. So we want to be very strong. The choir, Lord willing, will be singing at least one, maybe two new special numbers. That'll be a blessing that kind of goes with our theme this year. And we're very excited about that. And we want you to learn it and embrace it. And uh, the Lord will work in your heart and mind. Okay, look around you. If your neighbor doesn't have a Bible, uh, you share your Bible with them. We're in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to systematically work our way through the book of Revelation for a few weeks or months, and we're going to trust God that he'll work in our hearts. Revelation 2. Say amen if you're there. All right, we're going to do something fun tonight. I'm going to read the odd number of verses. I want you to read the even number of verses. And uh, we get to verse 7, we will read it together, okay? I'll read odd, you read even, read loudly and clearly. If I can't hear you, I'll ask you to read it again, amen? So you've got to help me. My, my hearing's going bad real, these days here, so you've got to help me out a little bit here, all right? Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Congregation, <laughs> And is born and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Congregation. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Congregation. Let's read verse 7 together. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. One of my favorite churches I love to study in the scriptures is the church at Ephesus. In fact, I love to, I love to study all of them, but Ephesus is a, is a, is a incredible church. And uh, we have the first mention of Ephesus. I'm not going to take time in the service to talk about it tonight, but I probably should, but I'm not. We have the first mention of Ephesus. Paul, on his second missionary tour, as he's coming to the tail end, goes down to Ephesus. And he tries to open something up, but doesn't stay down there very long. And uh, a man by the name of Apollos actually goes down there. He goes, he goes down there following him, and then he goes to Corinth. Paul makes his way back through chapter 19, very significant chapter. In fact, the entire 19th chapter of the book of Acts it, uh, speaks to us about the, about the church plant at Ephesus there. And it establishes some very core doctrinal distinctions, including baptism, which is very important there. Uh, a lot of people overlook that, but there's some very clear distinctions about baptism found in Acts chapter 19. 
In Acts chapter 19, we find that while Paul was down there, God was doing some phenomenal things. The Bible says that the word of God increased and it said it spread throughout all of Asia. Now, remember this as we studied last week. When we read about Asia here, it's not talking all of the Asian continent. Asia in that case, in this case, is talking about modern day Turkey. The Middle East is considered part of Asia and that's called Asia Minor, if you would. So this was the Middle East. When we talk about these seven churches uh, of Asia Minor and Ephesus being included that, that is modern day Turkey today. In fact, there are many going that go on trips. I love to go on a trip one of these days to go there, to go back to the ruins of what's there. Uh, several of our church families, I think this year, are going out there to, on, a, on vacation to tour that. Past, uh, Brother Justin and I uh, have a good friend of ours that uh, showed us some pictures of a trip that he led several of his church members to, where they went back and they actually visited all seven locations there. And there at Ephesus, he showed us how Ephesus, the, 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 the timeline, he showed us pictures of the timeline when how the church fell into apostasy over a period of time. The church at Ephesus had a great start. By about the 5th century, the church at Ephesus no longer existed. It had a great start. It had great pastors. Paul was his first pastor. Following him was Timothy. We read about that in First and Second Timothy. Following him from a, for a brief period of time was a man by the name of John who wrote this epistle. There were other pastors there. Read about that in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul goes is making his trip. He's coming back to Jerusalem. He stops off in an area called Miletus. Miletus was right on the shoreline there, a little bit closer than uh, to in his in where he was going. And he called for the elders or the pastors at Ephesus. And what that means is they had many multiple churches that were being pastored. And he called for all those pastors of those local churches to come and to meet with him there. So there were other pastors that were there. And Ephesus, we find, was a very prominent church. It was an on fire church. It was there that all of Asia Minor, that Middle Eastern area, heard the, the heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in that area of Turkey in, in a short period of time. We get to we get to Revelation chapter two, and Jesus is the one who gives a message here. We'll see that in a moment. He gives a letter uh, to he tells John, I need you to tell the church at Ephesus some things. And you'll notice in verse four, those of you familiar with this passage of scripture, this was a church. We'll describe some of it, some things about it. But this is a church where Jesus had a complaint. Now, all of us complain sometimes. I'll confess my sin. My biggest complaint is I hate traffic. Okay. I hate traffic. I hate standing in lines. Okay. I'm just, that's just me. Okay. Uh, if you go with me shopping, you better put your roller skates on because when I go, when I'm ready to check out, I find the shortest line possible. Man, I lose everybody when I, when I, when I get going to shop because they're trying to find me what, what checkout stand I, I, I love it that there's some, some of the Costco's now have self checkout. I love that because people get scared of self checkout. Not me. I'm right there. I check out. I'm, I'm out of there as quickly as I can. Okay. I mean, that to me is a blessing. Okay. But, Jesus had a complaint. Now, a lot of us have complaints. But when the Lord has a complaint, we better pay attention. Amen. I think we need to listen tonight. He says, I have somewhat against thee. Now, that's actually in English. Sounds a lot more toned down. Than really what he had to say. It's kind of like saying. Like going through a review with somebody, you tell them all these good things, and then you say, but. This morning, I want to, this evening, I want to preach a message that's a question. Where's the love? Where's the love? Where's the love? As we start 2020, an emphasis on only God. Where's 
the love. Father, thank you. Your people have been so kind and gracious to stand for these few minutes. Would you help this message tonight in our Bible study? To help us really, really closely examine our hearts. First, individually. Secondly, as members of Heritage Baptist Church. I thank you for everyone here tonight who came with their children and braved this cold weather out here. And some still recovering from sickness tonight. And are here this evening. Because I really believe as we began to sing tonight, they love you. I really believe tonight as our congregation sang that last hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee. I really believe everyone in this room loves you, Lord. I really do. But I also realize tonight that Jesus' complaint is perhaps the one area that most of us struggle in. We're up and then we're down. We're up and then we're down. We're hot, and then we're cold. We're alert, and then we're just kind of deadpan. And Father, tonight I pray that the Holy Spirit, who's our teacher, the one who comes alongside of us, would enlighten us, would speak to us, would quicken us, would stir us, and help us tonight. Father, I submit myself to you as your servant, to this precious body of Christ. And the privilege I've had to be their pastor. Which I do not take lightly. And I pray this evening that you'd minister to hearts. Build us up in the word of your grace. Even if Lord tonight it stings a little bit. Help us to take it graciously. And then tonight as the salve of God's ointment is placed on our wounds. And our hurt. Give us spiritual healing along the way. And I want to pause to thank you tonight for your mercies. And we pray for the mercies of listening, the mercies of a tender heart, the mercies, God, of the word of God working in our hearts, dividing the soul and the spirit and the joints and marrows, and would be a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. We pray tonight you'd keep us back from presumptuous sins. And Lord, we pray this evening that the Holy Spirit of God will be glorified and Christ to be glorified because of the preaching of your word. And we thank you for this now, Lord, in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated tonight. We are back in the book of Revelation. Our series, as I said last week, is entitled our theme, if you would, is, is entitled Our God Reigns. I hope you'll stick with this series. I hope that you use Sunday nights as an opportunity to invite people to come who normally don't come to church. And uh, we're going to be getting pretty heavy in just a few weeks into some very heavy uh, uh, studies of prophecy, which will help you. And uh, I know that probably prophecy is one of the more confusing topics for a lot of people. You read through the prophetical books and you read through the book of Revelation and Revelation, especially with all the symbols and the metaphors that are used. You're just kind of your mind is spinning and you're just you're not really sure where to start and where to read. And I pray that you'll stick it out with us as we try to just rightly divide the word of truth and help you understand the word of God. Now, uh, very quickly, I need to get into our message. I want you to notice Revelation 1, 3. 
As we read Revelation, as we study it, we must understand the Lord Jesus Christ in his admonition to us and how to receive, uh, how to read and study and receive Revelation. Notice Revelation 1-3. He said, Blessed is he that readeth and they that keep the, hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Now that's very important because this tells us set the, set the tone and the direction in terms of how to study and read the book of Revelation. Jesus said, Blessed is he that readeth. And they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things. Now, that's very simple. That's how you're supposed to read the word of God. That's how you're supposed to receive preaching. You're to read it. You're to hear it. And you're to keep it. God wants us to obey some things. Don't think that everything you're going to get as you read through Revelation is theoretical prophecy. It's not theoretical prophecy. It's real things that are unfolding right now as we sit here. These are exciting times. We are living in the unfolding of prophecy right now. And as we look at these things, he says, Blessed are those who read these things and hear these things and keep those things. And he says here, the time is at hand. Now, if the time was at hand when Jesus spoke these words to the church at Ephesus and to the Apostle John, who who at that time was 90 years of age, who at that time was exiled on the island of Patmos. Patmos was, a, was an island where they, where they put the criminals there. And he was, there, he, was, he was exiled there. And there in loneliness, there perhaps just kind of uh, maybe filled with sorrow because of all his friends had passed on and had gone up to glory to be with the Lord. He was there by himself getting this strong message. And John was there receiving it. There's a second thing I want us to see here. In Revelation chapter 1, we see something else. He told John in verse 19, Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now to help you understand how the book is divided. The things which he saw was chapter 1. He saw a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the word revelation can mean an unfolding, an opening. And the word revelation, as is given here in chapter 1, verse 1, also means apocalypse. It talks about the, about future things to come. And so John got a vision, a, a fresh vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, as I said last week. And it's a wonderful vision, which I didn't spend enough time on. Maybe some other time I'll come back to it in chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. But he said, write the things which thou seen. Then notice, if you would, he says, write the things which shall be hereafter. Now, the things which shall be hereafter. After begins in chapter four. In chapter four to the end of the end of Revelation, chapter twenty-two are the things which shall be hereafter. In chapters four and five, we're going to get a glimpse of what heaven's going to be all about, and what and what 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 heaven will be like, and what we'll do in heaven. But chapters two and three, and then chapters six to eighteen, we have we have uh, God gives us. He tells us about the great tribulation. Revelation chapter 19, we see the second coming of Christ. And in the tail end of chapter 19 and through all of chapter 20, we see the, the millennial period. We see the 1,000 year reign of Christ. Now remember this morning as we were in Isaiah, I spoke about the term the day of the Lord. Go back to a message I preached on a few weeks ago from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There I define the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord begins at the time of the rapture when we as believers are taken up. As, as we are taken up, the time of the day of the Lord is starting at that point. Now, as it starts, for the people left here on earth, which are all unbelievers, they're going to be delusional. They're going to say peace and safety. But the Bible says sudden destruction shall come. That's a definition of the great tribulation. Sudden destruction shall come. That sudden destruction will be a terrible, terrible time on earth. Listen tonight, if you're not saved and if the rapture comes tonight, you're going to be left behind. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be terrible, terrible time. In fact, you won't even believe, if you hear the gospel and you've heard it, and you don't, you, you won't get saved during the tribulation period, according to Second Thessalonians 2, because you'll believe 
believe the lie of the devil. Because I'll tell you what's going to happen. People are going to be glad. They're going to say this. We're glad those Christians are gone. We are glad those believers are gone. And they're just going to kind of shun it off and think nothing of it. And the Bible tells us that during those first few, few, few months of that time of the great tribulation, people are going to be in great party mode. They're going to be just, they're going to be delusional. They're not going to be forgetting all these things. And world events are unfolding in a way and so quickly people are not, are not going to even know what hit them when it happens there. And that tribulation time is a time of God's great wrath on planet earth. Well then, we have the second coming of Christ as I said. Then we have the 1,000 year reign of Christ. We're just a glimpse of that in chapter chapter 20 of Revelation. And then we that's, that's it's concluded with the great white throne judgment of Jesus, of Jesus Christ against all unbelievers which we called into his presence. And then from chapter 21 to 22 we see we see the day of God where the new heavens and new earth are created. Second Peter three talks about that. And then we see where a record there of what heaven, the new heavens and new earth will be like during that time in Revelation 21, 22. But we look at here, notice in chapter one, verse 19, he says the second thing. He says, write the things which I'll sing, chapter one, write the things which shall be hereafter, chapters four to 22. And then he said, write the things which are the things which are is what we're studying now. The things which are, are the seven churches of Asia Minor. The seven churches of, 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 uh, that were there in the area of Turkey. And these, these were seven distinct churches. You'll notice in verse, uh, verse 11, he speaks about them. He says, what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. God was concerned about these seven churches. All seven of these churches were born. They were birthed. They were planted because of the fruit of what God was doing there at Ephesus. They were born out of that. Included with this would be the church at Colossae, which we find where there's the book of Colossians there. There were multiple churches were established. Seven of them are, are found here that the Lord had a message for. It's a very important message. That message is still pertinent today because it describes to us characteristics of the church. In fact, as we read Revelations 2 and 3, we find there's just some great Great, great doctrinal truths about the study of the local church, which you want to give heed to. And uh, tonight we'll take a little bit of time looking at this. But he's writing these seven churches. And here in chapter two, verses one to seven of all the churches, the first one the Lord picks out is the church that was they gave that was really the starting church. It was really the the mother church, if I could say that. It was really the church that really got things going throughout Asia Minor. It was the church at Ephesus, the church that was on fire for God, the church where Paul wrote about the whole armor of God, where Paul walked, talked to, oh, he wrote to them about walking in love and walking in light and walking circumspectly, where Paul gives us the doctrines concerning sanctification and the doctrine concerning the Holy Spirit. And he speaks about the doctrine there of, of, of the local church and he speaks about the institution of marriage and he speaks about raising children I mean, when you talk about one of the most practical books of all the Bible it's the book of Ephesians there which was written to the church at Ephesus and Paul had a great fondness in his heart because he spent a long time there at Ephesus and he trained up leaders at Ephesus in fact, if I could tell you probably any one of the churches he probably trained the most number of leaders that rose up and served God was probably here at the church at Ephesus it was there that he trained up pastors and leaders that went out and pastored those churches but he comes to this church it's many years. It's many years after Paul started that church. Paul started that church probably around found fifty in the fifty A.D. period of time. It is now close to one hundred A.D. 
Forty years have gone by since that church was started and things were not the same. You know, our church is going to turn 21. I'm not sure what it's going to look like at, at, 40, at 19 years from now when it's 40 years old. But I will tell you this. If the Lord continues to tarry and, and, uh, and God continues to bless and we continue to stay on the right track, the church at age 40 will be a little bit different than it was at age 1. And it will definitely be a lot different than it is at age 20. I pray that many, if the Lord tarries, many of us in this room will be here to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Heritage Baptist Church. That would be just a great thing. Amen. And just seeing the expansions of God. And uh, I would love to see 20 years from now, churches we started and men we've sent out from this church to start to pastor those churches, that all those churches coming back here and the pastors coming back here and converging here and celebrating the work, great works of God. That would be a wonderful, wonderful thing I'd, I'd want to see and I hope to see during my lifetime here. But I, I say this to you tonight. At, at 90 A.D. or so, 95 A.D. or so, that this church was not the same as when it was started by Paul. And it was not the same as when Paul went there in Acts chapter 20 and talked to them about, about the things they needed to hear from another pastor's heart and the things they needed to do about taking heed to, the, to themselves and to the flock thereof. It was not the same church that was giving. It was not the same church that had the evangelistic zeal. It was not the same church that was serving God with great fervency there. This church had drifted. This church was not the same in Jesus asked the question in verse 4, where's the love? This church had drifted in the one area that every church and every Christian is prone to drift in. He asked the question, where's the love? And so tonight, we want to see a church that was first in love with Jesus and what happened to that church. And we want to see this evening how we can put some preventative measures in place in our church so our church stays on fire for Jesus and loves the Lord. I mean, I don't know about you, but don't you want the church to love Jesus all the time? Amen. I mean, don't you want this church to love Christ? And don't you want all of our ministries to love the Lord? And we have to understand tonight, the Lord puts his finger exactly as the, as the great physician on what the issues are with the church. And so tonight, let's see these things. Number one, notice with me the excellent characteristics. The excellent characteristics of the church at Ephesus. We begin by seeing the message of Jesus Christ to this church. He says, unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, right. Now I want you to notice a couple things in verse 1 in this message. And please, hope you take some notes there tonight. One of these days, you're gonna, some of you are going to be enrolled into the, the, uh, the, when we restart our Bible Institute. And you're going to want to know these things for the teaching concerning ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. First of all, Jesus is writing to the pastor of the church. The word angel means messenger. The word angel means messenger. Write that down. Now, it's speaking here to the pastor. There were seven literal pastors that he wrote to. Now, number one, you'll notice it is not plural pastors. It is it is singular pastor. Now, we hold to the authority. We hold to the fact of pastoral authority in a local church. OK, now, that's not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if the pastor goes out of whack, out of, out of context from what first Peter chapter five speaks about, where he lords over the flock and doesn't take you the oversight. And that's a bad thing where he's basically he's basically a dictator and he's not he's not allowing room for growth, things of that nature. Now, we believe in strong authoritative leadership. We do not hold to strong authoritarian leadership. Authoritarian leadership is a dictator type leadership. OK, and we've seen examples of that in days gone by. But here the Bible says in chapter two, verse one, he's writing to the pastor at the church at Ephesus. Now, the pastor is the one who has great responsibility to understand all that. You need to go to Hebrews chapter 13 and. 
and read there of what the church, the responsibility the church has to the pastor and the pastor to the church. And he's talking to this pastor here because he's saying, listen, you may have other servant leaders, but you only have one pastor in that church. And you have to understand, as a church, we are not Protestant in our thinking. Many Protestant churches have gone the direction of what we call of we call plurality of elders. And John MacArthur's church is a good example of that because he's kind of one of the more prominent ones. That, but most of these contemporary churches have gone with the plurality of elders. And what they basically do is they have all these different men. They call them elders for whatever reason. And the word elder is just a word synonymous with pastor. I don't have a problem people using that as long as they have the right definition. I believe that the word for pastor, the word for bishop, the word for elder, they're all talking about the same office. I believe it's talking about one and the same. It's the function of the pastor leading that. And I'm not against, and we have, we have somewhat of a model here. I'm not against having assistant pastors and people in that, con- in that context that are serving our Lord and helping to administer things so we can get the work done. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not unbiblical. But I do not believe you can find anywhere in the Bible where it's biblical for a church that plurality of elders. We're all equal on that platform. And I'll just tell you the drift that I'm a little concerned about. And some of it's in our fundamental circles. That's fine. You know, if they want to practice, that's their fine. That's fine for them. But you have you have the preaching pastor and then you have the administrative pastor and you got the finance pastor. You got all those things type of things. And you really you have to ask the question, well, who really is leading the church? Okay. And you have to really ask yourself the question, what's going on in the church here? Now, if that model works for them, that's fine. I'm just saying to you tonight, as we look at the model here, the, the Lord is talking in this message to the pastor. He has responsibility for the church. Now notice this. this the second thing we see is that it's a local church. It's the church at Ephesus. Now, we need to distinguish the local church from a universal church. Okay. A universal church is the idea that everyone belongs, we're all brothers and sisters of Christ, so we all belong to the same church, and it doesn't matter what church we go to, because they're all the same. I want to help you tonight. Not all churches are the same. The difference in churches is their doctrine. You need to go and see what a doc, what the church believes, because that, that, that is the distinguishing feature of a church. Universal church would be someone turning on the TV and watching Joel Austin and saying, that's my church. The other day I was witnessing to a man at the funeral, and as I was witnessing to a very kind man, a very good man, and he pulled me aside, and I could tell this man had been working out a little bit there. He was a little bit buff. And he said, uh, he said, uh, hey, pastor, I just want to tell you, I really appreciate your message. And he said, uh, you know, I, I could tell you studied up and read up. You prepared what you said and you didn't fly from the cuff. And he talked to me about a man. I've heard about this man who has a radio broadcast. And he says, I listen to this guy and so forth there. And so I started to witness to him. And I said, I started off by saying, well, do you belong to church? He said, let me tell you something. He said, I work out two hours a day. And I said, man, I wish I had two hours a day to work out. Amen. You know, he said, I work out two hours a day. And I said, yeah, I could tell. And he says, I work out two hours a day and I want you to know that's my church. And I, and, and I wanted to go off on that just at that moment. In time. I really wanted to go off on that. And I said, no, no I said, sir, I, I said, you know, in all respect to you, I said, that's not the church. Okay. And then I said, uh, but you need to be in church. Why don't you come on these Sundays and just see what it's all about here at Heritage Baptist Church here. And so he's writing to a church. Now, a local church is a biblical church church a local church is what jesus christ started okay the word for church that you find 113 times in the new testament the word for church in the greek is the word ecclesia say that with me tonight ecclesia ecclesia okay now in ecclesia now we have facebook today and social media you can get a message out and everybody knows what's going on you want to spread some gossip dirt on somebody man it could be out there real fast and you could destroy somebody on it okay but in those days if they want to get a message out here's what they did they would put up a posting around the town. And the posting would say, meet at the town square. 
meet at the assembly area and we're going to make, we're going to have our weekly announcements. Here's what we're going to do. And so people knew on Friday afternoon at three o'clock in the afternoon, they were to meet at the town circle and they would meet there. And whoever it was, the town clerk or the person would stand up and that person would get up there and they would read the message that everyone would need to know about some things going on in the town. And it's just kind of how they got the information, information sharing to everybody there. Now, that assembly of people there, there were literal physical people that came there. They came there to hear a speaker. The speaker gave them a message. And we, that word for that assembly, there was the word ecclesia. Jesus took the word ecclesia and gave it a much better meaning. He said an ecclesia is a visible assembly of people. But he was more specific than that. He said it's a local visible assembly. Local being right there on the spot. A local visible assembly. And here's what we define a church as. A local visible assembly of saved Baptized individuals, amen? A local, visible, visible assembly of saved, baptized members. Listen, you cannot have a church, you can't have a universal church. I mean, you don't see anybody of the universal church. It's an invisible church. I mean, who's the pastor of the universal church? And how do you take up your offerings for a universal church? That's why they like that, because they don't have to give an offering, amen? You know, I mean, I'm just saying, where, where do you put your offering? And how do you fellowship and all these type of things? The only kind of model the Bible advocates is a local New Testament church. And this church at Ephesus was a local uh, body, a a visible body of saved, baptized individuals. So we don't need to know the name of the members. We just know that the church was there. It was a Baptist church, Baptist in its doctrine. And so Jesus is writing in this message to the the pastor at the local church at Ephesus. Are you with me? Say amen. Okay. Now notice he says, these things saith he. Now when you read that in Revelations, when it says, these things saith he, we better listen. We better listen. Because it's Jesus speaking now to the pastor. It's the pastor getting his orders from the from the chief shepherd over every church. He says, these things saith he. Now, two things he tells us here in verse 1 that are so good. First of all, he talked about the seven stars. Now, the seven stars, remember, those are the, 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 the seven stars are symbolic about the seven pastors. Okay? There, you find that in chapter 1. The seven stars are symbolic of the seven pastors. Okay? Now, why are they called stars? Well, I think, I think Daniel chapter 12, verse 3 gives us some insight about that. Daniel 3. 12, 3, you look it up later on. But I th- believe these pastors were so winning pastors. I believe that, okay? The Bible talks about them shining as the stars forever and ever in Daniel 12, 3. I believe they were so winning pastors. By the way, I believe every pastor ought to be a so winning pastor. I believe every pastor ought to be a so winning pastor, okay? I, I believe these men were so winners. I believe right here that, 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 uh, that there was an evangelistic fervor. But Jesus said he was holding these seven stars in his hand. What he was saying to these men is that you have my approval and you have my favor and you have my power. And he says you might get discouraged along the way, but you're in my hand and you're in my control. And sometimes things happen in the church and problems come and difficulties come to families of the church. And you may feel like you're not really sure what to do. But Jesus says, don't fret, don't get upset. I've got it under control. Hey, you know what's comforting? to me as I go through the week and I get challenges that come my way. I'm not really sure what to do. I'm thankful tonight that I've got the favor of God. And I'm thankful that Jesus holds those seven stars in his hands. And he says, listen, you, you, you don't have to worry about these things. I've, I've got you in my hand. But then he says something else about the churches. In verse 1, and I'm giving you some background tonight, he talks about, he calls these churches golden candlesticks. Now, that's, that's the term. They're called golden candlesticks. Now, the image of a candlestick was the, was the Jewish candelabra. 
At UCSF Medical Center, that in the, uh, the, 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 uh, they're on Divisadero. They have several locations. They're in Divisadero. If you go, to, if you walk inside that area there and you walk in through the front door and you kind of go to the right and then you go down the set of stairs down to the cafeteria, you'll find as you make your way down, as you go down one flight of stairs, there's this huge Jewish candelabra that they put there. Now somebody donated that there, probably a Jewish doctor. And I, and I've t- many times have stopped there when I've been over at UCSF. I've stopped there there at that location at Divisadero. There's the, there's the clinic side on the left. And there's the hospital, the old hospital site on the right. And many times I've stopped there, that old candelabra, and, I've, and I would take my new Old Testament out because I would carry a backpack with my Bible in it or a briefcase with my Bible in it. And I would open up my Old Testament there and I'd read it and I'd start reading about the candelabra and I saw that candelabra. And you've got to read this here because the candlestick had the idea of the, of the candelabra, the Jewish candelabra, that when it was lit, it lit up very brightly. In fact, that was the image Jesus Christ had in mind when he said, I am the light of the world. He was talking about the giant candelabras that were lit up, that lit up the sky. Uh, back when they had their different feasts, the Feast of the Tabernacles and things of that nature there. And so he's saying here that these churches are candlesticks. Did you know tonight our church is a candlestick? We're to, we're to punch some holes in the darkness. We're to light up the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, ye are the light of the world. We're to be candlesticks that are shining brightly. And it's interesting, he's talking the church as a whole needs to shine brightly. Now that's why we have soul winning. And that's why we have special events. And that's why we try to get our name out. And that's why we, we're, we're really big on social media and things of that nature to get the name out because we're trying to shine brightly the bible says we're to hold forth the word of life i want to encourage you this week take a stack of tracts give some tracts out to people invite them to church shine brightly for the lord jesus christ here and he says here in verse one that jesus is walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks now i'll tell you what i like about that I, what I like about that is the fact that Jesus is getting, has fellowship with the churches. Jesus is in the midst of it. And all he's saying here in verse 1, if I can summarize all of this for you tonight. Jesus is holding the pastors in his hands. He's walking in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. And you know what he's really saying in all this? You know what he's saying? He's saying to the pastor, make sure you're not elevating yourself above me. And he's saying, pastors, make sure that you elevate me. And he's saying, church, make sure you elevate me. He's saying, church, make sure you realize I'm walking in the midst of the seven golden sticks. And you make sure that you recognize me and the preeminence of the preaching and the preeminence of the music and the preeminence of our service and the preeminence of our outreach. Everything centered on exalting Jesus Christ as Savior. Well, we see the message here, but notice the second thing. We see the marks of, of, uh, of these characteristics. We're looking at the characteristics of the church at Ephesus. There's a message to the church. But notice these marks. And as we read verses 1 to 4, the Lord Jesus Christ, actually 2 to 4, and 2 to 3 specifically, gives us some characteristics of a church that should be in love with Jesus Christ. First love is when the one you love is number one. Amen? First love is when the one you love is number one. I read the story about a man. His name was Bill. His wife's name was Susie. They're about to celebrate their second wedding anniversary. They're madly in love with each other. But he knew she was a, she was very specific that he, he, he couldn't miss that anniversary day. And she was very specific that she wanted to make sure that he acknowledged it. 
And so weeks in advance, he started planning and thinking and he started doing some research and asking some friends about what do you think I should do for our second wedding anniversary? And a friend of his said, you know what, One of the, you could do many things, but make sure on that day you, you, you surprise your wife with a large bouquet of flowers and you put a special note with it. He said, they said, just surprise her with a large bouquet of flowers and a large note with it. And he said, I can do that. So he went to a florist and he looked at some selections and he found one that was very expensive and very elaborate, very colorful, very fragrant, very beautiful. And he knew that when she would receive this, this large bouquet of flowers, that she'd put it on the, on, on the centerpiece of their table and she would just enjoy it. And he knew that the aromaticness of the flowers would fill up the room. And so they said, would you like to put a card with it? He said, yes, I do. And he wrote some things. And in big, broad letters, he wrote, he wanted, he said, here's what I want you to write down in big, broad letters. I want you to write down happy anniversary year number two. Happy anniversary, year number two. He said, did you get it right? They said, we got it. He said, happy anniversary, year number two. We placed the order. He put it on his charge card, gave the instructions, and then he counted down the days. Well, the wedding anniversary day came, and he purposely planned that Susie would be home uh, that morning. He said, don't go to work. I want you to be home. And she knew something was going to happen. And she was kind of, you know, kind of gigglish there. She said, he's going to, Bill's going to do something great for me. I just know he's going to do something really good. And, uh, and he didn't, she didn't know it was going to happen early that morning. And, uh, he said, I'll be home for a little bit here too. And then we could take off together. And so he knew that the delivery was supposed to come at eight o'clock sharp. And uh, he started looking at his watch and counting down with 758, 759, 759. He hurriedly went to a bedroom, bedroom very close by to where the front door was. He, he, put the, he closed the door slightly. And then he heard the ring bell. He says, yeah, the guy's right on time. Eight o'clock. He heard the doorbell ring. And he said, Susie, would you go get the door? She said, sure. She knew it was all for her. And so Susie opened the door. This man's standing there. And she couldn't see the man. This huge bouquet of flowers he's holding. And it was aromatic. And she could smell all the flowers and she he presents the flowers and she's just so giggly she's so happy about this and then she puts the flowers on the table before she props it up and she sees this card there and she opens the card and reads it and her face goes from from smiling to very sad to very angry and she calls out with a very stern voice which she knew when the tone of voice was not what he expected something was wrong she said bill would you please come into the room and Bill Hurley got in and she says, what is this all about? He said, what are you talking about? Don't you like the flowers? She said, no, I'm talking about this card here. It says, happy anniversary, you're number two. First love is when there's only one, one person. First love is when you're number one and there is no number two. Would you notice this church here? Jesus starts off by saying, in verse 2, I know. I know. When you're in love, the person that loves that you love and the one you love, you know. And Jesus starts off by saying in chapter 2, verse 2, I know thy works. But you notice some things about first love. Number one, first love is stirred. It is stirred. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Three things. You know, when you're first love, man, you're busy serving. First love, you want to do things. You go out of the way. You don't worry about time. You just want to do it. You, the person that you're in love with, when you have that first love, you are serving. You are working. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Listen, this church was active. This church was alive. 
This church was arduous and this church was accommodating. It was patient. Listen, when you have first love, you're very patient with that person and you're over accommodating. You don't see any faults with that person. I mean, first Corinthians 13, you're baptized in first Corinthians 13 type of love. If you know what I mean there, here was a church that was fundamental. Here was a church that was friendly. Here was a church that was on fire for Jesus Christ. Here was a church that was focused. Listen, a church that is stirred. I remember the early days of our church and still today, a church that's stirred is a church that's active winning souls. It's a church that's busy making disciples. It's a church that has bold, courageous, biblical preaching. It's a church that starts multiple services. It's a church that has wants to start new works and new ministries. It's a church that looks for opportunities to expand. It's a church when there's the preaching of God's word, there's contriteness in our hearts and a, and a sensitivity that we want to obey the Lord. I mean, here was a church that was stirred. I'm just saying today that when you think about first love, first love is stirred. Secondly, it was a serving church. He says, I know thy works. And he's not talking about a work. He's talking plural works. A busy church is serving. As we look forward to going this week, the church will be serving. We're going to get these floors clean. We're going to be some tidying up around the church. We're going to have some great refreshments on Sunday morning as people make their way for the adult growth, group, growth groups and Sunday schools. We're going to clean all the buildings and get everything ready. The orchestra is going to be ready. I mean, there's going to be practice and rehearsals for the orchestra and choir. They're going to they're going to introduce, Lord willing, at least uh, one new special number that I believe will be a blessing to our church. And uh, there'll be uh, our AV will be tested and and all these things will be going on. Photographers and videographers will be ready. We're going to be re- making ready uh, readiness for some special presentations. On, on Sunday morning and Sunday night. I mean, there's all these things going on. We're going to be serving one another. And Jesus says about this church, I know thy church. When you're in love, you're doing things for that person and with thy person. that person. It was serving. Notice it was a separated church. He said in verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Notice this, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Now this was a church that practiced biblical separation. It practiced biblical separation. It practiced separation from the world, and it practiced what we call ecclesiastical separation. Okay, This was a church that was doctrinal discerning. This church was 40-something years old. It had gotten to a place where they people there, they knew their Bibles. And the pastor, whoever he was, he, he kind of led that group to make sure that wolves were not coming in and praying on the flock. And he was the kind of pastor who made sure they were discerning what was going on. And the Bible defines it this way in verse 2. He says, Thou canst not bear them which are evil. In other words, they had a very, they had a zero tolerance for sin coming in the church. They dealt with sin. They did not let sin persist. They did not let sin go by. Let me tell you something tonight. As a member of the Heritage Baptist Church, you're going to get close to people and you're going to find out that people are human and sometimes you find out people are human you find out that they have indulgences and sins that are really not biblical about that and sometimes as a friend you're going to think i you know what i i i, I probably shouldn't say anything if you want to be a good friend of that person you need to put your arm around them and tell them listen you're going away from god and you're out of god's will how me understand tonight if we're living in sin we're out of god's will we're not in God's will at that moment of time. We need to get back in God's will. For the Bible says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Okay? So, so we realize tonight, this, this church here, and, and they weren't like in your face type of thing, but this was a church here. He says they, they, they had zero tolerance for sin and they dealt with sin in the camp there. But another thing he says there, he says, thou hast tried them, thou hast trusted, tested them and proven them who said they were apostles. Now here's what's going on. There are all these fraudulent imposters who came up during that time. You read about it in Peter. You read about it in Jude. You read about it through the epistles about these fraudulent imposters who came around and they would say something like, well, I'm an apostle. I saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, they would 
make these, these false claims. And so instead of just naively accepting the, the words of these men, you know what they did as a, as a leadership team of the church? They tested them and they proved them. And they said, let's find out if you really saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's really find out if you were a witness of his resurrection, because that was one of the criteria for being, being an apostle. Read that in Acts chapter 1 there. And, he, and they, the Bible says they tested them and proved them that they, that they were liars and they were not true. Listen, we still have to do testing and proving today. Some may come in from other church backgrounds where they, they, they just have a different doctrinal understanding and they come in here for one reason, to infiltrate and to permeate and to bring a different doctrine in there. And that's not just not going to happen. Amen. That's just not going to happen. Say amen. That's not going to happen here. Okay. And we have to understand that wolves will come in, as Paul said there. And so Paul was, John was commending them here that, that they, they were separated in what they were doing. But here was a church that was steadfast. Look at verse three. <laughs> In verse 2, we see that they were serving. We see in verse 2, they were stirred. We see in verse 2 that they were separated. But notice in verse 3, they, they, were, they, they were steadfast. He said, Thou hast borne and has patience for my name's sake and has labored and has not fainted. Here was a church that was steadfast. Now listen, we have, to, we have to view the Christian life and serving God and doing church, if you would, as, as long distance runners. We have to be steadfast. You know what? You're going to get tired sometimes serving God. You might be tired today. I'm tired today. But now preaching most of this week here you're gonna you're, you're gonna get tired and you're gonna be weary and you're gonna get you're gonna get you're gonna get tired of the routine as brother denny mentioned tonight you're gonna get tired of the routine of sometimes doing the same thing because your your heart sometimes might not be in it but jesus actually was commending this church he says i know you have borne and has had patience he said you've dealt with the hard issues you've dealt with the trial you've dealt with the difficulty and you've had patience through all this you've borne and has had patience they've been steadfast notice the word labor here in verse 2 and 3, the word labor is more than just work. He's saying working to the point of exhaustion. The word labor here is not the word ergon, where we get our word ergonomics. It has the idea where there's trouble in your labor. Literally, it means this. They were laboring to the place where there are tears coming down their eyes. They were laboring to the place where they're weeping over the work. They were weeping over the souls of people. They were weeping over things. Hey, let me tell you tonight something you can learn about ministry. Most ministry is not what you see the FaceTime. Most ministry is not what you see in the face and what you see in public, because that's a sh- that to, to some people that's just kind of the face, the fit, the front of ministry. But what really goes on in ministry is the back end of ministry. What you don't see, the praying and the weeping and the crying and the laboring and asking God, what do we do in this situation? This is way over our head, and we never got training for these situations, and we're not sure what to do. And you get in a situation where there's moral issues, then there's legal issues, and you get into other issues, there's family issues and financial issues and things way over your head. And I'm going to tell you tonight, we, you get people along the way where, where they're basically, they come to the preacher, they say, preacher, we're not sure what to do. And they cling to you literally for life. And they cling to you for help. And you don't want to say something to mess them up. And you don't want to lead them astray and tell them the wrong thing. And so you're burdened and concerned that whatever comes out of your mouth better be from the mouth of God and better be from the mind of God there. And there's weeping and crying and you're wondering, God, what do you want me to do? Let me tell you tonight, true laboring is when you labor for the Lord and you're weeping in your soul and you're broken in your heart and you weep and cry when somebody leaves and you rejoice when something good happens. I'm just saying tonight, he says, I've watched this church. This church has labored. This church has wept. This church has cried. They've labored to the point of exhaustion. They've labored to the point where they've wept in tears. And I'm going to tell you tonight, real labor for Jesus Christ. And when there's a tear in our eye for people we're serving there. But this was a church to sacrifice. Look at verse 3 again. That was labored. He has not fainted. Thou was born. That's patience. We're going to be an only God church. 
there has to be sacrifice. Sacrifice means we're going to give up some things. Have to give up some things. Witness for two hours yesterday. We, my wife and I had a great day out witnessing. Nobody got saved, but got planted a lot of seeds. Young man who's lived in the states for several years came from a foreign country. Zero concept of God. Zero concept of God. He told me where he goes to school. What he's majoring in. And I'm praying under my breath saying, okay, Lord, I I want to leave the door open so I can come back and talk to him. That's very important when you witness. Because he wasn't going to get saved anytime soon in that that meeting yesterday. And I shared my testimony with him. And kind of gave him some ideas and thoughts about what to do as he's in college. And Brother AJ, for about 45 minutes, he was speechless. I had him spellbound. He was listening to me. I don't, that was the Holy Spirit working. And he asked me this question. He said, Mr. Fong, he said, before you started talking, I'll be real honest with you. My concept of pastors and churches, you guys are a dime a dozen. I wouldn't waste my time with you guys. I said, hey, you know... You know, I could, I could slap you across your head for being disrespectful for just a minute here, okay? Or I could tell you, thank you for being very honest with me. And I said, thank you for being very honest with me. He said, why are you in the ministry? Why are you serving? Why are you doing this? I mean, I could see you helping kids like myself. You see, you just gave me more ideas than I got the last three years I've been in college. Why, why, are, you, why are you doing this in the church? I said, because I love Jesus. Because he saved my soul. He's done more for me than I'll ever do for him. He's doing more for me than I'll ever do for him. I said, whatever I'm giving for Jesus is nothing compared to what he gave for me. I said, in fact, I'm not doing enough. And a lot of times, if you experience witnessing, you'll, you'll tell somebody, let's exchange numbers. I didn't do that. I said, I'm going to give you my number. And um, when you're ready, you want to talk some more, I'll mentor you. I'll help you along the way. If you'll let me witness to you, I'll mentor you along the way. I said, you, you, you contact me. Man, I had, I didn't, Brother Denny, I didn't leave there for 15 minutes. He sent me a text message with his name. He got his phone number and everything. He says, he just wanted to let you know, thank you for spending time with me. I look forward to meeting with you again. He came to church today. Yeah. Came to church today. Second time. We're going to make an impression for Jesus. We've got to sacrifice. Hey, you're going to, you love somebody, you're going to sacrifice. You're going to sacrifice. It'll cost you a little bit there. Turn with me real quickly, Genesis chapter 29, very quickly here, because we need to get moving here. But Genesis 29, we have, we have the love story here of Jacob for Rachel. Jacob was the son of Isaac. He was the grandson of Abraham. I want to go to Genesis 29. just want you to see a few things. Here in Genesis 29, we look at the life of Jacob. And Jacob, Jacob Jacob is a picture of first love. 
I mean, notice, notice some of the traits I just read about, just told you about from, from Revelation. We find this in Jacob. The Bible says in verse 10, And it came to pass when Jacob was, saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jabin, the Lotus says, that Jacob went near, and he rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Hey, you know what? He, that's incredible first love. He saw Rachel, his heart almost came out of his chest, and he did something that took the, that took the strength of many men. Normally, multiple shepherds work together to roll the stone away from the well, but he did it by himself. In fact, those shepherds said, we don't move the stone away until everyone comes here with all their sheep because we don't want to move it a second time. He said, when everyone gets here with their sheep, we'll move it. It was, it was, it was a little bit past midday. Jacob said, that's not a problem. And with like superhuman strength, this guy who never moved anything big before, he got he got real strong because he saw Rachel and he had first love towards Rachel there. And the Bible says he rolled that stone from the well's mouth. Not only did that he did do did he do that, he did he did shepherd work was which would probably have been beneath the dignity of most other visiting men. He went and watered the flock. All of Laban's flock there. So I want you to understand, for several hours, this man moves the stone away by himself. He moves it away. And if you've ever moved something of a large object, a probably along the way, he probably cut his arms. He probably hurt his hands. He probably got some calluses. He probably hurt his fingers. He hurt and cut himself along the way. And then he, after that, after moving the stone away, he got the bucket. He dipped it down into the well. He started, he started giving water to the sheep multiple times. I mean, this took over a couple hours time for this man to do that. I mean, that's first love. First love means I'm not, there's no, there's nothing's going to inhibit me. Nothing's going to stop me. Nothing's going to restrict me. I'm just going to do it. And he did it out of a heart of love. He didn't get compensated. He didn't get paid to do this. He did it because he saw Rachel and there was first love. It gets better than that. We go down to verse 11 and it says he kissed Rachel and lift up his voice and wept. That was a Hebrew tradition they did there. Not t- you don't do that if you're dating guys. Okay, don't, don't even think about that guys. Okay, just want to let you know that. And then verse 12, Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebecca's son and that she ran and told her father. Now she, he got an introduction to the father and uh, he goes down and you'll notice a little bit later, they're talking with each other and they find out they're, they're distant relatives. And the Bible says here, uh, the Bible says here that um, uh, verse, let me see here, verse uh, 18, it says, uh, verse 18 says, and Jacob loved Rachel. Now this first love. He's heads over heel. He's doing multiple cartwheels. He's doing somersaults. I mean, this guy, this guy's jungle gym. He's crazy about Rachel. Amen. And he says, I will serve these seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. Hey, fathers, that's a good, that's a good proposition for future son-in-laws. Solomon said to me, dad, thank you. You didn't make me serve seven years for Carice. I said, it crossed my mind many times. That's first love. He served seven years. No wages. Hard work. The prime of his life. For first love. I know thy works. And thy labor and thy patience. We see the excellent characteristics. Number two, very quickly. I've got to move on. Let's go to verse four. Go back to Revelation. We see the excruciating complaint. Jesus has told this church what he knows about them and they're, they're in agreement. They say, yes, we understand that. And then the Lord, if you can imagine the tone of the Lord's voice, not necessarily thundering, but perhaps a little bit of shudder, a little bit of shivering, a little bit of quaking, remorse, sadness, difficulty. And as the tone of his voice changed, 
This church at Ephesus knew something big was going to be said here. Jesus knows your works, Heritage Baptist Church. He knows your labor. He knows your patience. He knows you've born and have had patience and has labored. But Jesus now is speaking to Ephesus as he speaks to us. With a quaking in his voice. A concern in his heart. A burden that he's carried for a long time. That now this precise moment he's about to unload. He's going to say, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. You've done good. You've started a church. You've won souls. You've made disciples. You've, you've started a Bible institute and you've trained men and you've sent them out. He said, you've got a heart for missions and you've done well in faith promised missions and you, you do well in your giving and your offerings and, and you, and you're able to support your ministers full time and all of these things. He says, you've done well. But he said, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Now, I want you to imagine if your husband came to you and your wife came to you and told you all the good things about you and then said, nevertheless, I've got a complaint. And more often it's the wife coming to the husband. Amen. <laughs> nevertheless, I have a complaint. And here's the part that, boom, hits you right here. Takes the wind out of you. Don't just take the wind out of your buckle down. You're thinking, whoa, that was hard. Nevertheless, thou was left thy first love. The word left is a very interesting word in the New Testament. It's the Greek word aphiemi. It can be translated forsaken, departed. If you go over to Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus is giving a discourse to the Pharisees on marriage, it's the word asunder. Asunder is a very strong word. It doesn't sound like it, but it's asunder. It means basically divorce. It's gone. Look at that word left. He said, thou has left me. Jesus loved his church, but sadly his church did not love him. Jesus was in his place. Remember, he said, I walk in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. But the church left. They departed. They abandoned. They forsook. They left their first love. The feeling was gone. The love became cold. They did not enjoy what once stirred them. Everything we read in verses 2 and 3, it sounds really good. It's all mechanical. It's all repetition. It's we're used to doing it. Just do your thing. They took things for granted and cut a lot of corners. It's just like what happens in marriages. They start with great fervency and passion for one another. After a while, we get too used to being married. 
We take for granted our spouse. We stop doing the things we used to do that we did to win our spouse. We stop saying I love you. We, we stop making sacrifices. We stop doing the extra things we used to do. We want to be pampered instead of being someone who serves. We have too many competing things going on in our relationship. And in some cases, sadly, they love someone or something else more than their spouse. The romance becomes routine. We're in it for what we can get out of it, not what we can put into it. And they get to the place where there's complaining and dissatisfaction with one another. They get to the place where they're holding secrets from each other. There's a double life. And one is away from home more than he or she should be. Trust starts to diminish. And your spouse realizes when they try to go behind you because you're not being truthful, you're spending more time with someone else or something else more than your spouse. By the way, there are ways to find out. You live on two different schedules. Yeah, you live in the same house, but you're cohabitants, you're not lovers. You're in the relationship to exist, not to love. Church, how many of you remember your fervency? You couldn't wait to get up to go to church. You couldn't wait to come back to Sunday night. You got yourself ready. You got yourself a Bible. Got everything ready, set to go. Man, you were so excited about church. You would get your little children together. And man, you'd get them all dressed up and ready to go because you were excited about church. And they got excited. And they said, Mommy, 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 we go church, we go church, we go church. Yeah, we're going to church. But it's hard right now. You used to go soul winning with fervor. And you'd come for the challenges because you knew that something would be given to you that would be imparted to help you be a better soul winner. But we barely make it a tie because it's competing with other things we've got going on. We used to give generously. And by the way, our church is a generous giving church. Don't get me wrong. Thank God for that. A sacrificial church. These buildings would not be here if it wasn't for the sacrifice of the God's people. Young people growing up who have no incomes. The people, the older people here who've preceded you, they've sacrificed. Don't you ever forget that, young people. They've sacrificed. But the feeling's not there anymore. I don't want to give like I used to because I just don't want to give. We'd have special events. We'd ask for volunteers. They'd line up, Pastor, can you use me? Nowadays, man, we got to look. For, hey, 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 come back. Don't leave. Used to serve in a ministry with great enthusiasm. You were a team player. Come on, guys, let's do it. 
Now, it's kind of like every man does that which is right in his own eyes. If you don't get a pat on the back, you're disappointed. When first love is gone, you want out. You want extended leave of absence. You know, first love is, you know, you're so in love with your church. You're so in love with what's going on in the church. Listen, Alan Fong is not a Sam Davison. Alan Fong is not a Jason Gaddis. Alan Fong is not a Paul Chapel. Alan Fong is not, is not any of those kind of people. But you came in spite of all the mistakes I make and I speak too fast. And I'm hard, it's hard for the translators to follow me and all these things. You came because you knew one thing would happen. You'd get God's word. But nowadays, here's what goes on. Well, you know what? Let's go, let's go down. Let's go over here. Let's go check this church out over here. We want to go check out. Where's your first love? Where's your first love? And you'd go on vacation and you'd think, man, before I go on vacation, I better find out if there's a good Bible preaching church I'm going to go to. It doesn't matter how good the preacher preaches. It's a good Bible church. You just go there. I've been some places. I'll be honest with you. It was short of a dud. But you know what I learned? God humbled my heart. Just the fact the word of God was read, that blessed my heart. And some of my best friends are churches at places where they're not necessarily guys that can get me all fired up and under preaching. But I'll tell you what, when they God leads them to choose a particular passage of scripture, again, because I have a pastor's heart, they open it up, start reading it. Man, God starts speaking to me. I said, man, I'm glad I came to church this morning. Let me tell you a couple of the things, serious signs of when first love is gone. Would you write this down? Let me tell you some things, some serious signs of erosion so you know when first love is gone. Number one, disobedience. John fourteen fifteen. Jesus said, if you love me, if you love me, keep my commandments. Disobedience. There's 634 commandments in the Bible. Are you keeping them? Are you keeping them? Number two, disengagement. Genesis chapter 3, turn there very quickly. And it says here in verse 8, Genesis chapter 3, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. By the way, wherever God walks, he expects us to be there. Amen. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. What are you doing running from God? They just sinned. Their conscience. That's, hey, you know what? Here, here's what happens. When God made Adam and Eve, it was a period of great innocence. There was innocence. There was purity. There was holiness. They were perfect. When they sinned, their conscience kicked in. One of the evidences that, that there's no such thing as evolution and we're created beings, we have a conscience. Yeah. Read Romans chapter 1 and 2. Right. Your co- animals don't have a conscience. Trees don't have a conscience, okay? Don't tell me for all the tree huggers, well, the tree was crying. Probably cried, but it didn't have a conscience, okay? <laughs> Top it down, amen. <laughs> you don't have your conscience? Look at little kids when they know they did wrong. Yeah, Big tears come down their eyes. And those big tears come down. Guess what? You start crying too, right? God said, Adam, Eve. Look at verse 8. Where art thou? And that's what your husband and wife asked. Where are you? That's what God's asking us. Where are you? 
Where are you with the first love? Disobedience. Disengagement. Hey, disloyalty. James 4.4. 4. Go to James 4.4. 4. Hurry. We got to go in. People got to go home and eat dinner. Amen. Listen to James 4.4, 4, very strong, very strong. Yes. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. That's strong. Yes, That's strong. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Disloyalty. It was painful and excruciating for Jesus to tell his church he had this complaint. Is God telling us we've left our first love? I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. The excruciating complaint. Finally, would you notice one last thing? We're done. He gives us the excellent characteristics. He speaks of his excruciating complaint. Would you notice in verses 5 through 7 as we close very quickly, would you notice the essential correction? Now, I'm going to tell you what's great about the love of Jesus Christ. He never leaves us down in the pit. Amen? He never tells us the problem without getting us to the solution. He never leaves you there to languish. Because you know what? We love him because he first loved us. And if he first loved us, he's the one who's going to help get us, off, get, get us off the ground and get us off the dirt and get us off our face. He's going to help us to get right. So he's going to give us the essential correction. There's an essential correction. Now, he gives us the remedy, the, the prescription here, the medicine we've got to take. And by the way, it's very bitter medicine we've got to take if we want to get it right. And would you notice in verse 5, he gives us a path. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. And notice this here, first of all, okay? Very quickly. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, okay? Retrace your steps and ask yourself, how did this happen? What did I stop doing that I used to do? What, what, what changed? Remember from whence thou art... Hey, remember the story in 2 Kings 6 about the lost axe head? Remember that story there? What did, what did the prophet tell that prophet who lost it? He says, alas, master, for it was borrowed. He said, it's not my own, and I've got to return it to the owner. That's his livelihood. He says, what am I going to do? And you know, Elisha was very calm about it. He says, he says, show me where you lost it. And he said, right there. He threw a stick out there, and it came, it came one of the great miracles of the Bible. The axes started swimming back to shore. Hey, you know where you're going to find it? Where you lost it. I tell you, if you lost your love because you weren't giving, you need to start giving. If you left your love because you stopped sowing it, you need to start sowing. Hey, by the way, for most people, you left your first love because you stopped having your devotions. You stopped reading your Bible and your Bible reading you. You stopped praying and talking to God. Hey, you'll find it where you left it. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Then he said, repent. Repentance is a change of mind and heart. It's the word metaneo. Repentance is agreeing with Jesus about our condition. That's important. It's agreeing with being on the same page with Jesus about our condition and our need to change. Repentance also includes the confessing and forsaking of our sins. Write this down. Look it up later. Proverbs 28, 13. Okay. Repentance is necessary to receive his mercy. And then he says this in the path. He says in the past, remember in the path, repent. And then notice in verse five, he says, and do the first works. 
Well, repeat. Go back and do what you used to do. Make a list of everything you used to do. And he says, repeat those words. So he gives us a path. But notice verse 5. He speaks about the punitive very quickly. Notice the punitive. He says, remember therefore from whence I art fallen and repent and do the first works. And then after the semicolon, would you notice this? Very powerful. Or else. Now when someone says or else, that's threatening, is it not? It's like, whoa, whoa, what do you mean or else? There's a consequence. There's punity. There's a, there's punitive action from our Lord. He says, or else I will come unto thee quickly. Now the Lord says, you get it right or I'm going to be in your face. That's what he's saying there. And I will remove by a candlestick out of his place, except that I repent. You know what the Lord's saying there? As a church, if we don't remember, if we don't repent, if we don't repeat, you know what the Lord's going to do? He's going to come in. We're not going to even see it happen. And he'll take away our testimony. And he'll take away our influence. And he'll take away the blessings of God. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to lose the blessing of God on Heritage Baptist Church. We're not going to lose the blessing of God here. By the 5th century, the church at Ephesus had apostatized so badly, they lost their influence. The golden candlestick had been removed. He says, your influence is removed, you will be replaced. So Jesus talks about the path. Jesus talks about the punitive. Then notice in verse 7, Jesus tells us about the prize. In between all that, Jesus talks about he says he t- gives him one other commendation, which is kind of interesting. <coughs> he does this. He does this at, at, at uh, before verse four, uh, not before verse four, but after verse five. And he talks about a group of people called the Nicolaitans. Now we'll say more about that on a future message because I got a whole message about the Nicolaitans. But the word Nico, do you ever you ever wonder what the word Nike means? The word the word Nike means victory or conquer. Okay. The word Nico is where we get our word uh, Nike from, okay? So whenever you see victory or conquering or overcoming, that's the word Nico or, or Nico or Nike. That's what the word Nike means, a conqueror, okay? A victor, if you would, on that. And the word Nicolaity means this, the peep, those who conquer the people. That's what it means, those who conquer the people. Now, what, there are many who believe that it was, a, it, was a, it was a cult that was started by a man by the name of Nicholas. Some believe it may have been the, one of the seven men that was chosen in Acts chapter 6. I'm not sure I can concur with that. But whatever it may be, they're called the Nicolaitans after the person who founded it. And there was licentious practice and eating food offered to idols and a number of things like that. And we'll get into that another time. And he says this about, about this church, which is very interesting, because he said they left their first love. But then he talked about this. He said in verse 6, But this thou hast, thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. It's kind of like God saying this, you know what, I think I think you're still on the right path, but you need to do the right things. And then he says in verse 7, he says, listen, I've told you about the path and I've told you about the punitive. And as we close, notice, I want to tell you about the prize. He says, because it's really it's really up to you. I've, I've shown you what to do. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do about the first love? How are you going to restore the first love? How are you going to get on back on a corrective path? And he says here, he gives a generalized promise. And remember now, as he gives us, it's not just specific to the church at Ephesus. This is for all the churches because he's writing to all the churches. He says, he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And he said in verse 7, he that hath an ear, let him hear. Now, here's what God's saying. You better listen. If you have an ear, you better listen. He's going to hold you accountable for what you hear. He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. He says, listen, I want you to understand, it's the Spirit of God speaking to your heart right now. And, and by the way, through this message, if you're feeling your heart pricked and something going on, it's the Holy Spirit of God speaking to your heart. And he said, to him that overcometh, to him that is nikio, 
will they give to eat of the tree of life. Now, the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden in paradise. Remember that? Genesis 2, Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, access to the tree of life was cut off. We are descendants of Adam. But thank God for the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Amen? We're descendants of Adam. No one has access to that tree of life per se. Physically. But he has a spiritual meaning behind this. You see, because we read the Bible, the Bible says, the fruit of the righteous is the tree of life. The Bible, the Bible says that, that, uh, that good words are a tree of life. Uh, Solomon said that the desire accomplished is a tree of life. He says the wholesome tongue is a tree of life. John says in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, that that, that, that tree, the tree of life will bear 12 manner of fruit and will yield its fruit every month. And its leaves will give healing to the nations, which is very important when we think about the, the, the nations, the judgment of the nations that I alluded to this morning. And what he's saying through this, he says, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. You know what he's saying? I'm going to give you, if you can, if you can persevere, if you can stay in love with me for the entire time of your Christian life, if you as a church can stay on fire for me, if you as a church can keep the soul winning hot, if you as a church can keep the preaching going, if you as a church can keep on starting ministries, if you as a church can see men called to the ministries and missionaries sent out, and you raise up young people to be to live lives for God, and you can do all the things that a church is supposed to do and have a good influence. He says, to him that overcometh, he's not only talking to individuals, he's talking to churches. He says, to him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life? And I believe what our Lord is saying this. He's saying, listen, you, if you can stay at it, the ultimate is true satisfaction that you have in Jesus Christ. Christ. He said every spiritual need you have will be satisfied. You will be walking in the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Lord. He says, listen, you're going to be in a pathway to victory. Listen, every believer in every church wants to be the place where we're continuously feeding off that tree of life and getting the ultimate satisfaction that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. It's life giving. It's life growing. It's our sustenance. Let me tell you tonight, that tree of life is Jesus Christ. It was a bright Sunday morning in the 18th century London. A man by the name of Robert Robertson, his mood was all but cheerful. It's early in the morning and he had his hands in his pockets. He's walking down the cobblestone streets of London. Robert Robinson was probably the most discouraged man in all of England. People were getting ready to go to church. Church bells were ringing. Robert Robinson had no friends. He's a very lonely man. And hearing those church bells that morning reminded him of years past when he had a great faith in God. It had been years, many years, since he had set foot in a church. For all those years, he'd been wandering disillusioned and gone from God, from the God he once loved. The love he had for God was once fiery, affectionate, and passionate. And all that was left was just a few burning embers inside of his heart. And those were quickly diminishing. He had his hands in his pocket. He's walking his way down the cobblestone streets of London, England. He heard the clip-clop, clip-clop, clip-clop of a horse-drawn carriage.
looked behind him and he saw this horse-drawn carriage and inside was a lady, very, very well-dressed. They noticed the way she was dressed. Most likely she's going to church. He wanted to get inside that carriage, but he looked and saw that woman. He said, nah, I'm not sure I want to. But somehow the driver pulled up next to him. He said, sir, you need a ride? He gave his greetings to the man. He looked inside. The lady, the, He and the lady, they exchanged eyesight. He nodded his head at her. And she just kind of flung the door open abruptly. And she said, are you going to church? Uh, yeah. Would you like to come in? No, nah, that's okay. I'll walk. She said, why don't you come on in? I'd be glad to share my ride with you. I'm going to church right now. Those seconds felt like intense hours because he's thinking, do I really want to go to church? Do I really want to go back and sing the hymns? Do I really want to go back and face the God that I walked away from? But something in his heart said, I'm going to do it. Robert Robinson accepted the gracious invitation of this well-dressed lady. He got inside that carriage. He walked in, got inside the carriage, sat across from him. And they exchanged, exchanged greeteries. And something interesting happened. This woman, she pulled out of her purse a small book. And you can tell this book was one of those books people carry that had inspirational verses inside of them. And she opened the book and she started reading them. She says, you know, sir, I was just before you got on. She said, uh, I was reading some poetry written by a man by the name of Robert Robinson. That man. And he felt really uncomfortable. And she said, you said your name's Robert Robinson. Are you? She, and he said, ma'am, I'm the one that wrote that poetry you're reading. And she said, I want to tell you, I can't believe I'm sharing a carriage ride with the author of these very fine lines. She said, these words you wrote, listen to this, these words you wrote, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. He said, ma'am, I wrote those words. Can I see that for a minute? Because he had memorized his whole poem. He knew his poem. He got down to about the third or fourth stanza. That last stanza said something like this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. He said, ma'am, that's where I'm at right now. I don't even know why I'm telling you this. I wrote those words at a time when I was greatly in love with the Lord. But I've been away from him for a long time. I had no idea when I wrote those words, I would be prone to wander prone to leave the God I love. Ma'am, I can't go with you. I can't go with you. I'm going to get out. She said, wait, Mr. Robinson, you didn't finish the poem. She took the book back out of his hand and she read the remaining two stanzas. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Listen to this. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for 
by courts above. She said, Mr. Robinson, it's not too late. It's not too late. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it with my abounding love. Tears came down this man's eyes. The first time for years, his sin-crusted hardened heart was softened by the words of a very poem he wrote. Robert Robinson, who'd spent many of his previous years in deep depression and discouragement and loneliness, knew at that moment of time the love of God was reaching out to him and saying, Robert, you left me, but I never left you. And I close with this. If you've left him, it's bad, but he's never left you. He's never left you. He's never left you. Where's the love? Where's the love? Church, we're on the cusp of 21st anniversary. Love Jesus. Love him with all your heart. Remember, repent, repeat, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick, except thou repent. Father, this evening we ask that you'd move in our hearts about our love for Jesus Christ. Father, you helped us this evening to diagnose perhaps where we've left the Lord. And we need to realize that Jesus must be number one and there is no number two. Refire us, revive us, stir us, we pray. I ask this evening, Lord, that you would just help your people to be very conscientious of our life for you and glorifying the Lord. Use the invitation for us to just draw near to you right now. If we've wandered away, thank God, like Robert Robinson, we can come back to you. We may have been prone to wander, prone to leave. We can come back to the God we love. Father, have your own precious way tonight in the Heritage Baptist Church. Revive our love for you this morning, we pray. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. Why don't you stand with me tonight? I want you to come and do business with God tonight. Jesus is never the one that moved. We're always the first ones that moved. Is there competing love? Are there some secrets we're keeping from the Lord? As our fervency faded and diminished, would you find your place tonight? Would you find your place tonight? Would you pray that we have a fervent, ardent love for Christ in our church? Would you pray for that tonight? For God to have his way in a wonderful way. Tonight, if you're not sure you're saved, I remind you, God commended his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord offers to you the free gift of eternal life. Receive his love tonight. Call on the Lord to save you from your sins and be part of the family of God. Be born in his family tonight. Christian, let's approach our 21st anniversary with great fervor, enthusiasm, and desire to glorify the Lord. Would you join me tonight in doing that? Father, tonight we lift up our hearts before you as people that know that we're greatly loved of God. Thank you for your divine mercies. And this evening as your people have just 
graciously received the word of God. Help us tonight to grow in faith, to abound in the love of God. Dismiss us tonight with your blessing. Lord, help us as we approach our anniversary Sunday. Have a wonderful Sunday, wonderful day of the preaching of God's word. And we'll thank you for all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.